Hello. Well, thank you all for coming out. Um, I hope you can all hear me. I am um, very grateful, first of all, to AJ organizing this event. Um, I'll tell you, there's a deep arrogance in me. I've always thought that the world should be paying attention to what I have to say. On the one hand, on the other hand, I'm amazed that anybody does, which is a kind of a, which goes to show you that uh, different qualities can coexist in us at the same time. You have different parts, and 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 uh, I'm certainly in a fortunate position now where I get to say what I think, and people actually come out to hear it. In thinking about what I was going to say tonight, I um, well, we look at the state of the world. There's a lot of questions being asked these days, mostly about how do we fix this or that problem. So right now in the United States, every three weeks, you have the equivalent of a 9-11 happening in terms of the number of people dying of drug overdoses. Where's the corresponding alarm? Where's the corresponding mobilization of resources? Where's the sense of national crisis? And people are running around, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And the North American response to almost anything is how to fix it. Um, my first book on ADHD, which was I wrote after I was diagnosed with it myself, the Canadian title was, my own title was, Scattered Minds, A New Look at the Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder. A New Look. The American title, when it was published in the States, was scattered. They took off the word minds, thinking that you people south of the border can't understand that word. I don't know what the thinking was. Uh, but it's the subtitle that enters me, because the subtitle they gave it was How ADD Originates and What You Can Do About It. So it's the what to do. Whereas I was saying, no, you need a new look. So the what to do is always the wrong question. And this society is always asking what to do about this, or what to do about racism, what to do about bullying, what to do about terrorism, what to do about oh, economic crisis, what to do about unemployment, what to do about whatever. That's not the important question. The important question is always why. Why is something happening? What is actually going on? And without asking that question, without pausing, without actually looking to see what is giving rise to any particular phenomena, we're never going to get at the right answers. The big why for me came when I read a book uh, when I was about 11 years old. And we're Jewish, we grew up in Hungary, and, and some of you know my history. My grandparents were killed in Auschwitz, and my mother and I and father barely survived the war. I was an infant. And I didn't know much about that history. I, mean, I, I knew that this had happened, but I didn't know anything about the background. And on my parents' shelf, quite high up, beyond where I could reach, there was a book called The Scourge of the Swastika, which was written by a British civil servant who later became a lord in the British House of Lords. Uh, and he had served as, a, I think, an investigator or a prosecutor uh, at Nuremberg after the war. And this book, written in the 50s, was the first one to lay out in detail the extent and depravity of the Nazi crimes. And as an 11-year-old, literally my head went into a spin. This question of why, how is this possible, it occurred to me day after day after day after day, going through my teenagehood. 
question of why. And now when I look at the world today, just from the physician's point of view, from the health point of view, what do we see? Well, we see a society, not just in North America, but as globalization extends its reach around the world, we see increasing levels of certain illnesses, certain mental illnesses, like ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which didn't used to exist. In certain countries, all of a sudden, they have a problem with it. Uh, autoimmune diseases, like, like inflammatory bowel disease, that didn't used to exist in certain societies, now exist in these societies. If you look at North America, if you look at multiple sclerosis in the 1930s or 40s, the gender ratio was about one woman to every man. Now that ratio is about three and a half women to every man. If you look at something like asthma, which is rising amongst kids, um, a study in the United States last year showed that the more episodes of racism a black American woman um, experiences, the greater her risk for asthma. We've known for a long time that the more stress that parents have, the greater the risk of the child having asthma. In North America, millions of kids are on medication now for depression, anxiety, ADHD, and more and more kids are being medicated all the time. If you look at something like autism spectrum disorder, it is now being diagnosed 40 times as often as it was 30, 40 years ago. Anxiety is the fastest growing diagnosis in North America amongst young people. And the usual medical explanations for any of these phenomena just doesn't doesn't hold. Because medicine, for the most part, sees all these problems as simply biological issues, multiple sclerosis being a disease of the nervous system, inflammatory bowel disease being malaise of the gut, ADHD, depression, anxiety, addiction. These are problems of the brain. And for the most part... We like to rely on genetic explanations, that it's the genes that are causing these things, or if it's not genes, we don't know what's causing them. But of course, if you just look at that one little fact that I told you about the ratio of women and men and multiple sclerosis, you know right away it can't be genetic. Because genes don't change in a population over 70 years, and if, it did, if they did, why would they change more for one gender than the other? Nor it can be the climate, nor the diet. Because that hasn't changed more for one gender than the other. Something else is going to be going on with ADHD, the fact that many more kids are being diagnosed. That can't be genetic. Genes don't change in a population over 10 years or 5 years or 15 years. Sure, there's lots of factors, such as the pharmaceutical companies actually pushing certain diseases, like ADHD, and certain physicians who who got big bucks for researching these so-called diseases and, 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 and for promoting pharmacological solutions uh, without divulging that when they publish their research, that's a well-known fact as well. But it's also true that anybody who works with children, uh, teacher, psychologist, counselors, we know that there's more troubled kids now than there used to be, you know, all, at all segments of society. So the question of why, uh, it's the question of what to do about any of these problems, is utterly really meaningless. 
without some kind of a theory, without some kind of explanation, what is actually going on. Now let me give you an even a bigger puzzle. About 13.8 billion years ago, so about 14 billion years ago, there was no universe. No stars, no earth, no sun, no matter, no molecules, no atoms, no neutrons, no electrons, no creatures, no beings, nothing. And then it starts expanding. And then we get the universe. And, and, and these formations called human beings that began with this non-matter 14 billion years ago, we love and we hate and we live and we die and we um, procreate and we interact and we have complex emotions and we have complex interactions. Why? What, what makes all this possible? And what sets? How, how did the how did that early emanation result in this complex universe where we have living creatures? And you have these living creatures, particularly called human beings, who've got these complex lives, who do so many things that actually undermine their existence and their health. And we do this on a social level, and we do this on the individual level. And we do it to ourselves, and we do it to each other. And all the while, we're loving creatures, and we want companionship, and we want meaning, and we want pleasure, and we want transcendence, and we want to belong to the larger unit. We don't want to be isolated. We have some spiritual needs, aspirations. What is all this about? Well, I don't claim to have the answers to all that. I'm just saying the why is so important. Let's begin with something basic. If you have a bunch of plants growing in a garden, and these plants were not developing the way they should, if they were start behaving or, or, or manifesting in ways that are pathological, that doesn't further their growth, that doesn't ensure that they have the longest possible lifespan, that stunts their development somehow. If you were a gardener, what would you do? Well, you'd have to ask yourself, what, condi- what is the nature of these plants? And what conditions does the nature of the plant demand for healthy development? And I'm suggesting that rather than looking to diagnose diseases or conditions or behaviors, why don't we look at what is the nature of human beings? And what conditions are necessary for the healthy development of human beings? And what happens when those healthy conditions are not met? So in other words, instead of seeing human behavior as sort of inherently pathological or healthy, why don't we look at it as the outcome of circumstances, just as we would the development or maldevelopment of a plant or, say, an animal? So I'm not going to go through all of evolution with you and, and, and scientific prehistory, not that I know it anyway, but I'm certainly interested in what is human nature and what conditions promote its healthy development and what conditions undermine it. And it's, from the point of view of 
how does a culture meet the needs of human beings and how does it promote healthy or unhealthy development that we have to judge any society. Now we have the, uh, what is it called, the GDP, the gross domestic product. We measure, you know, in, 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 in this system, this is how we measure success, is how much wealth. In a materialistic society, we measure success by the possession or the control or the production of matter, of materials. That's what it means to be materialistic. It is materials that matter. But is that really the true measure of a human society? Well, it's one measure. But is it a true measure of the successful society? Can a society be called successful because it produces more matter or controls more matter or owns more matter than, than some other society? Well, I would suggest that an equally important, at least as important, measure of a society and a culture in a system is to what degree does it meet human needs and how well does it promote healthy human development and to what degree or in what ways does it undermine it. So what is the nature of human nature? Well, again, in this system, it is believed and often taught that human nature is essentially selfish, individualistic, aggressive, and competitive. That's human nature. And so when somebody behaves that way, you say, oh, well, what can you do? That's human nature. But I believe that to speak of that is to make a rather elementary mistake, which is to take this society as the standard of what human beings are supposed to be. It's true that we're taught to behave that way. As a matter of fact, not, not only are we taught to behave that way, the most successful people in the society do behave that way. That's how they become successful, very often. As we all know, even to the point of threatening our very existence, uh, the, the, the selfishness and the aggression and the desire to own and produce more and to control more is, 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 is jeopardizing our, our, our very being. So, yeah, if that's human nature, then what can you do? That's just human nature. But what if that is not human nature? What if that is a distortion of human nature? What if, in fact, our nature demands something else entirely? And not to look at human nature, we need to look at how human beings evolved through eons, millions and hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands of years. And then we have to look at what are the needs of the human child, what needs does a human child actually have, and what needs does a human being actually have. And rather than trying to determine the nature of human nature from how human human people behave in certain situations, let's look at from the point of view of their needs. And then I think what we'll find is it's not so much that it's human nature that predicts certain behaviors because there's so many different human behaviors. I mean, you can have a Hitler who tried to kill me when I was less than a year old or you can have a Jesus 
or you're going to have a Martin Luther King. These are all human beings. So what then is human nature? How have we understood that it's not so much that there's a human nature that predicts behavior, but what there actually is, is a human nature that means that we have certain needs. And if those needs are met, we're going to behave in predictable, predictable ways. And if those needs are not met, we're also going to behave in predictable ways. So it's not our behavior that defines our nature, but our needs that define our nature. And the behaviors reflect the degree to which those needs are met or they are not met. And what if we look at it from that point of view? Well, what do we find from that point of view? And, 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 and how would looking at human nature from that angle lead us to understand physical, what we call physical or mental pathology? And I say what we call because diagnosis and pathology and so on is just a certain way of looking at something doesn't necessarily reflect reality. Or it might describe a certain reality, but it doesn't necessarily explain reality. And we have to make a distinction between descriptions and explanations. So what is human nature? Well, I mean, what is the needs of a, what is the need of any human child? And it doesn't matter what human child, whether you're looking at humans living close to the North Pole or the South Pole, in the East or the West, in Europe or in Africa or Asia or North America or wherever, what are the needs of a human child? Well, the essential need of the human child is for attachment. Now, attachment is a biological drive for connection with another human being. And it's an essential drive because without it we can't survive. The human being is the, the human child is the most immature, most dependent, and um, most vulnerable creature in the universe. So without somebody looking after her or him, he just, she, they just don't survive. So that attachment drive, you can say that's part of our human nature. In other words, we're born for love. Because in other words, for attachment is love. Not only the love of the child or the attachment of the child to the parent, but the attachment of the parent to the child. So attachment is this drive that pulls two human beings together for the purpose of being taken care of or for the purpose of taking care of. And of course, attachment also pulls human beings together for reasons throughout the lifespan. The human beings did not live the way we lived uh, through most of human existence. So if that wall in the room represents the beginning of human evolution millions of years ago, and if that wall over there represents our present day, then until this far away from that wall there, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer grouping. 60 to 80 to 100 human beings living together. And that meant that children were always around their parents. Always around their parents. There was no separation. Not just around their parents, but around the whole group of adults, all of whom acted as um, as parental figures in a child's life. So a child grew up ensconced in a network of very safe attachments. Safe in the sense that everybody cared for the child. 
number one. Number two, when you look study hunter-gatherer groups, they always carry their kids everywhere. The North American natives had the papoose where they carried the kids everywhere. Uh, in Nigeria, I think, or Kenya, there was a newspaper article about 10 years ago I read rather amusing. Somebody, I think in Nairobi, Kenya, opened a pram store, like a, a baby buggy store. And it wasn't very, it wasn't doing very well. And the uh, reporter asked the shop owner, well, how come you're not doing better business in this big modern city? He said, well, our people just don't understand why they put the kids into a machine and push them. They carry them everywhere. Now, it's not infrequent these days to see a parent pushing a buggy and playing with the cell phone at the same time. Do we think that the kid in the buggy whose parents is on a cell phone is getting the same kind of uh, information about the world as the baby who's being carried on the parent's chest or back or belly? The third thing um, about hunter-gatherer groupings, and the reason I'm talking about them is because that's human nature. That's how we evolved. That was our nature. So the first thing is that there's small groups living together, and kids had many adult attachments, many adults looking after them, protecting them, uh, mentoring them. Number one. Number two, um, the kids were carried everywhere. Number three, they didn't let their kids cry. Now, when I say they didn't let them cry, I don't mean that they, 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 they forbade crying. You can't forbid a bit of two months old from crying. But they wouldn't, if they cried, they were immediately cuddled. Now, here in North America, we actually tell parents, we teach parents not to pick up the kids when they're crying. That's called sleep training. We're actually telling parents, don't pick up your kids when they're crying at night because we want them to sleep through the night. And if you pick them up, they'll learn that they can just wake you up in the middle of the night and, you know. And then you can't go to work in the morning. I'll say something about more of that later. So that's the third thing. They don't, they just let their kids cry. The fourth thing is, generally, generally, hunter-gatherer groupings don't hit their kids. And if they do, it's only in an acute situation when the kid is about to crawl into an anthill and you pick him up and you quickly slap him on the bottom, teaching him not to do that. But there's not a question of uh, spanking as punishment. It's very interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a, there was a novel published in Canada about uh, the interaction of the European colonists and the native uh, First Nations people. This author actually went back to the documents of the time, and it's a, it's a recorded fact that the Europeans were appalled at the parenting practices of the natives because the natives didn't hit their kids. And to the Europeans, this meant spraying the rod, spoiling the child. So in this particular novel, there's a Jesuit that writes home to his superiors in France, and he says about the natives, the the sauvages, the savages, children and dogs run around without care, rolling in the dirt with one another. If there's one thing I will never go accustomed to, it's the savages' inability to chastise their children. In all my years, I've never even seen an adult 
raise a hand in anger toward the child. Indeed, this should be one of the first behaviors you must try to modify. So the Europeans were really um, aghast at the fact that the, these, these people didn't hit their kids. So multiple adult attachments, being, being with the adults all the time physically, not being hit, and not being allowed to cry. Now, why does a kid cry? We're still talking about human nature here and what happens to it. Why does a kid cry? Well, kids got no other way to ask for help but to cry. So crying is a sign of distress. And what can the distress be over? We're distressed when our needs aren't being met. So if we're hungry, a baby will cry. If they're uncomfortable because their diaper is dirty and wet, they're going to cry. If they need attachment contact, they will cry. When the needs are met, the child is soothed and eased and their nervous system relaxes. When the needs are denied, the child gets more riled up. When the child is riled up, you get stress hormones going through uh, the whole body to the brain. Stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, particularly cortisol. Cortisol interferes with healthy brain development. When we don't pick up our kids, we're interfering with their brain development. You didn't have to tell Aboriginal people this. But in our modern society, you have to teach this. And people say, oh my God, really? That's not what my doctor told me. They told me, and as a doctor, I used to tell people the same kind of nonsense. Don't pick them up. Let them cry through the night. So what I'm saying is that from the very beginning in this society, we're denying people's essential needs for healthy development. Right from the get-go. And haven't even said anything about how we've medicalized birth and people no longer have natural births and that itself is a problem. And then we live in a very stressed society. So the parents are stressed. And when the parents are stressed, the kids are stressed. It's that simple. Because children utterly rely... Children have no self-regulation. So if you're stressed as an adult, if you're mature enough, you can regulate yourself. You can take a few breaths. You can calm yourself down. You can say, okay, slow down. Let me think about this. Let me deal with this. An infant can't do that. Infants got no self-regulation whatsoever. But the only way that the infant can regulate their internal... No, you know what it's like when you're upset. Your heart is racing, your blood pressure is up, your nervous system is on fire, your guts might be churning or stopping, muscles are tense, everything changes about you. Same with the infant, except the infant has no capacity to regulate themselves. The infant's brain requires the mature function of the adult's brain to regulate it. I'm quoting... Dr. Dan Siegel, a UCLA psychiatrist and child development expert. So the infant's brain requires the mature function of the adult's brain to regulate itself. But what if the adult's brain is not functioning maturely because that adult themselves never got the right conditions for the healthy development? Now you have an immature adult's brain regulating or trying to regulate an immature infant's brain. So that self-regulation never develops. 
And when you stress parents, well, for example, I mentioned asthma. When you stress parents, that affects the child's physiology. Because, let me step back a bit. I'll follow the because with an explanation, but let me step back a bit for a minute. Western medicine, the medicine in which I was trained, separates the mind from the body. So, in, in, a Western, in the Western medical mind, um, and I'll prove this to you in a minute, uh, certain questions just don't arise. So, I'm going to just ask you in this audience, if in the last five years you've been to any kind of a specialist, uh, uh, otolaryngologist, a throat specialist, or a ear, nose, and throat specialist, or a gastroenterologist, or a cardiologist, or a neurologist, or a rheumatologist, or a dermatologist, just raise your hand, would you? Okay, so quite a few people here. Now, raise your hand again if your ologist of any kind asks you about your childhood uh, relationship with your parents. Anybody? Nobody so far? Okay, ask you if they've ever been traumatized. Did they ever ask you that? Anybody ask you how you feel about yourself as a human being? What is your self-concept? Do you like yourself? Do you not like yourself? Did they ask you about stress on the job? Did they ask you about that, maybe? Nobody? Right. Because the Western medical mind separates the mind from the body. And so when you come in with a physical problem, that's all it is. It's a physical problem. The fact that the mind and body are inseparable, not only are they inseparable theoretically, they're inseparable in practice. And not only are they inseparable, we actually have the science that shows exactly how inseparable they are. It's not like this is voodoo medicine. This is up-to-date science. Despite the fact that the science shows the unity, practice cleaves them into two. And not only do we separate the mind from the body, the emotions from the physiology, we also separate the individual from the environment. But let's go back to the example of the black woman who experiences racism, thereby increasing her risk of asthma, or the infant or the young child whose parents are stressed and therefore they're more likely to have asthma. We see, number one, that emotions can't be separated from the physiology because somehow a racist episode increases the chance that your lungs will be inflamed and your airways will be narrowed which means the emotion, whatever you experienced, probably suppressed rage or shame, whatever you experienced, actually affects the physiology of your lungs. And if your parents are stressed, that also affects the physiology of your lungs. In other words, the separation is unscientific and it's untenable in real life. But that also leads to another question. Why are so many parents so stressed these days? What's happening culturally and socially? And furthermore, if you look at that asthmatic Afro-American woman, is that asthma a manifestation of her own pathology? Or is it reflecting a social malaise? In which case, her lungs are simply reflecting 
a historical problem in this country. In other words, the separations are illegitimate and they are um, non-scientific. They're ideological rather than real. And this isn't a new idea. The Buddha said 2,500 years ago, well, he, 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 had a, he, had, he talked about what he called the interconnected core rising of phenomena. The interconnected core rising of phenomena. He was simply saying that everything is connected to everything else. He said, contemplate all the conditions near and distant. He says, look at a leaf or a raindrop, a leaf or a raindrop, and contemplate all the conditions near and distant necessary for the existence of that leaf or a raindrop. Obviously, you look at a leaf, it contains the sun, the photosynthesis, the effect of light. Obviously, without the sun, there'd be no leaf. The sky from which the water falls that irrigates the plant that then produces the leaf and the earth, the minerals and the nutrients and the materials that make up the substance of the of the leaf. So that leaf contains the earth, the sun and the sky. And and, and Buddha said um, no every phenomena depends on the existence of all other phenomena. He said without the many there cannot be the one and without the one, there cannot be the many. If you look at parental stress, it's not an individual phenomena either. Contemplate all the conditions near and distant that lead to that parent being stressed. So it so happens that Puerto Rican kids in Chicago have higher rates of um, asthma than other ethnic groups. They also happen to have families that are more stressed than other families are. Now, is that the individual family problem, or does that reflect the social problem? In other words, what I'm saying to you is that there's no condition of human beings, physical or mental, virtually, virtually, I mean, there are some exceptions, but virtually no condition of human beings that we call pathology that does not reflect the social and cultural uh, background and issue. And we can't understand any of this without looking at the larger picture. And it's very interesting. Medicine is very interesting that way. If you go to a dermatologist with an inflamed skin, what kind of cream are they going to give you? Anybody know? Steroid cream, right. If you go to a rheumatologist with an inflamed joint, what medication are they going to give you? Steroid very often. If you go to a, a lung specialist with asthma... What kind of inhaler are you going to get? Steroid. If you go to a gastroenterologist with inflamed intestines, what kind of medication are you going to get? Steroids. Now, what are steroids? They're copies of cortisol. What is cortisol? It's a stress hormone. We're treating everything with stress hormones. Maybe it should occur to us that stress has something to do with the onset of these conditions. And that stress is not an individual problem. Stress is a social problem. And so if we're seeing more of this or that condition, let's consider that we're looking at the manifestations of something in the culture. To go back to multiple sclerosis, for example, why women? Well, what if we understood, which 
is my perspective, that is very much a stress-driven condition. And it's very much a disease of people who take on too much stress in their lives unwittingly. Well, let's look at the situation as for women. What has changed from seven years ago? Women have always had the roles of being the ones who absorb the stresses and um, problems of their families, including their spouses. So when you see the number of women who are getting anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications being many more historically than those of the men, does that reflect the weakness of the woman? Or does it actually reflect the fact that the woman is absorbing the stress of both people in the relationship very often? That's their cultural role and their whole family. Well, that hasn't changed. That's still the case. But on top of that, women now have to um, either choose to or have to, in many cases, play an economic role as well. They have to have a career or jobs and so on which should be okay and even beneficial if the other role was shared equally. But it isn't. Women still largely have the role of being the stress absorbers of their larger families. And there's more stress than there used to be because there's less connection. Now, Dr. Stephen Porges, who done brilliant work on the nervous system, he points out that safety is not a question of a lack of threat. Safety is the presence of connection. Now, in this society, there's much less connection than there used to be, for all kinds of reasons, which I don't have to go into, but, I mean, it's obvious. And if you read my book on addiction, you know that there's a particular store in Vancouver where I would shop for classical music in a very addicted fashion. And it's a beautiful story. <laughs> no, it really is a beautiful story. It, 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 it's, it's magnificent, large, tall ceilings, and the staff are so musically knowledgeable and friendly, and such a great atmosphere in there. And there's, there's all kinds of recordings from decades ago so that you can get anything ever recorded almost. And, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of money there and in a very addicted way, but that's not the store's fault. Uh, but that store is closing now. Just The news just came out a couple of weeks ago. Second to last classical music store in Canada. I don't think you have any left in the United States. Because online and digital technology has thrown them out of business. Now, what does that mean? That means that that person who wants to buy music now doesn't go to a store doesn't talk to a human being, isn't in a human environment, they sit in the isolation of their home and they push buttons on a machine. There's less and less connection. So what I'm saying is, multiple sclerosis women, their role have doubled, but there's less connection, so there's more stress. You know, because you know, when, you, when you're... Um, if I stressed you right now, for example... Uh, It'd be a very different matter if you were by yourself and nobody to share with than if a friend of yours next to you says, hey, how are you feeling? As soon as they ask you how you're feeling, your stress level goes down. So the lack of connection leads to increased stress. And there was a very interesting Australian study 
that showed, they looked at a number of women who uh, had lumps suspicious for breast cancer, so they had to have biopsies. And they uh, put these women through a psychological questionnaire before the results came back. And after the results came back, it uh, turned out that if a woman was emotionally isolated, that by itself did not increase the risk of that lump being cancerous. Similarly, if a woman was stressed, that by itself did not increase the chance of that lump being cancerous. But if a woman was stressed and emotionally isolated, the risk of that lump being cancerous was nine times as great as the average. And the physicians and, and the scientists who did the study, of course, couldn't understand this because they said, how does zero and zero add up to nine? Zero effect, zero effect, nine, what? But to go back to our example here, if you, my friend, were stressed right now, which means there were high levels of stress hormone in your body, cortisol and adrenaline, but your friend of yours next to you said, hey, how are you feeling? Do you want to talk about it? Your stress level will go right down. But if you're emotionally isolated and you're stressed, then your cortisol level will stay high for a long time, and cortisol suppresses the immune system, which means that a malignancy is more likely to develop. Which means that cancer is not the disease of the individual. The development of cancer in an individual reflects a lifetime history of relationships to family and to the culture and to society. Which then might explain to us, for example, why if you look at, again, black Americans, black Americans are more likely to get prostate cancer and more likely to die of it and not because of lack of medical care. And black women are more likely to die of breast cancer, even if they have access to good medical care. But why is that? Well, maybe there's something about being a minority in this particular culture that is so highly stressful that it deranges the immune system. So is it an individual problem again, or is it a social problem? It's also true that in some very high economically advantaged areas, I think in Marin County, for example, amongst well-to-do white women, there's a high breast cancer rate. Maybe they're very stressed in a different way. And maybe they're isolated emotionally. Maybe that's what's driving it. So what I'm saying is, you can't separate the mind from the body. You can't separate the individual from the environment. And the only way to look at human beings is, as somebody once called, 41 years ago, an American physician called for what he described as a biopsychosocial view of human beings, which is to say that the biology can't be separated from the psychology and that can't be separated from the social environment. And I think if we follow traditional medicinal practices, we will take it one step further and we will say bio, psycho, social, spiritual. Because we also have spiritual needs, I maintain. I'm not a religious person in any way whatsoever. Uh, never have been. By spiritual, I don't mean uh, belief in a God, although if that's what it is for you, that's what it is, that's fine. But a sense of connection to something greater than we are.
And some American physicians a couple of years ago put out a paper where they called for what they call the biopsychosocial ecological point of view. We also, when we also look at the, eco, the ecology with which we're interacting. And that's obvious because, again, if you look at women who live in uh, blighted, more blighted neighborhoods where there's more pollution in the air, when they're pregnant, their kids are more likely to have learning problems and behavior problems and so on, related to the degree of pollution that they inhaled when they were pregnant. So now if we look at human beings from this point of view of human needs, which are for connection, and that connection is necessary not just for um, child-rearing, but also for procreation, obviously, also for group formation, and we did not evolve as individuals, we could not have evolved as individuals. If we were rugged individuals, we wouldn't be. It's that simple. because we could not have survived millions of years of evolutionary pressure as individuals. So what we call rugged individualism is the very opposite of human nature, not not an expression of it. Furthermore, in this society, we make a huge distinction between individuality and individualism. There's nothing more predictable than the and, 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 and stereotypical than a rugged individualist. Being an individual actually means not just doing your own thing. It means being, being able to maintain yourself while in intera- your individuality while in interaction with other human beings. So you're connected, but you're still an individual. That's what it means to be an individual. Individual basically says... I don't care about anybody else. That's not human nature. So then if, from this point of view, we look at the rise in mental health, what we call mental health pathology, the the rise in physical health pathology, this is despite the advances of medical science, which are immense and breathtakingly amazing, when it comes to acute illnesses and infectious illnesses, but we do really badly with chronic illness, autoimmune diseases, um, cancer for the most part, and we do extraordinarily poorly with mental illnesses. If we look at the rise or the intractability of these conditions, then maybe what's missing is not medical dedication or medical skill, but a perspective that connects the dots. That connects the dots. And if we connected the dots, then when you went to see a physician with your asthma, they would ask you about the stresses in your life. They would ask you, what happened to you in childhood? How stressed were your parents? And why is that important? Because it's not what happened in childhood that's the problem. It's what we made it mean for ourselves that is the problem. And what we carry about what happened in ourselves. Now, there was a study this morning. I just came in my email today. A new study that showed that 
children who are stressed or abused as children, as, as, as young creatures, the stress changes the functioning of the nervous system through the activity of the immune system in such a way as to make them more susceptible to the effects of cocaine. This is the latest study. The same thing has been shown in laboratory animals, that if you stress infant mice, that changes their immune system, which induces changes in the nervous system, which makes that nervous system more susceptible to the effects of cocaine. In other words, they're more likely to become addicted later on. So that means that when you went to the the, the medical doctor, uh, you would uh, be asked about what happened to you in childhood, and not only what about what happened to you in childhood, but about what how does that affect you today? Now, let me give you an example. So I'm 74 years old now. So when I was young and stupid, at 71 years old, I uh, I came home from a speaking trip. From, actually, I was in Philadelphia, and I flew home, and I was in a good mood. The airline had bumped me up to first class, and I'd given a good talk, and I was just thought, what a great guy, and all this. And I landed at the airport, and my wife's supposed to pick me up, and I get a text that says, I'm still at home, do you still want me to come? I text back a very terse and angry, never mind, and I take a taxi home. And I come in, and I barely even look at her, and when she asks me questions, I sort of grunt. And I do this till next day. This is after 46 years of marriage. <laughs> and, she sa- and she finally says, knock it off already. And I'm able to report with great pride that after one day I was able to knock it off, which <laughs> a few years ago might have taken me a lot longer. Here's the deal. I've been with this woman, married to 46 years, been with her by that time 48 years, three years ago. She's an artist. In fact, that's her art behind you. Those are two of her paintings. And when she's in the studio, if any of you do art, the artist forgets that there's such a thing as time. Or that they have a husband. I've only known this for four and a half decades. So what am I so upset about? What, anybody any idea what was actually going on? What's going on? So she forgot, so what? Well, what am I so angry about that I won't even talk to her? Any idea? Yeah? Attachment, so what about it? I was missing the attachment, yes, but why was I, instead of, oh, I'm home, I'm happy to see you, what am I angry about and why am I not looking at her? So, so what's actually happening is, is abandonment, yes. Yeah, so I'm all of a sudden an abandoned infant, you see. And the abandoned infant, when they see the mother again, now no, I was an abandoned infant because I was a year old. I was given to a total stranger in the street of Budapest, a Christian woman who smuggled me out to safety and I didn't see my mother. This is under the Nazis. And I didn't see my mother for six weeks. When I saw her again, I wouldn't even look at her for several days. This is simply the emotional withdrawal of the child. It's self-protection. 
it says that I was so, my heart was so bruised when I opened, when I was open and vulnerable to you that I'm not going to do that again. So I closed down. And I'm sure many of you might recognize within yourself that when you're in a relationship and you perceive yourself or you perceive the other person as having hurt you, your response is to withdraw and get kind of sullen and not, you know, that, not what that, what is that? That's the reaction of a small infant. That's, the, that's one way they can protect themselves, is not to open themselves again. But this is 70 years later. But you can imagine that for those 24 hours, when I'm not talking to her and I'm caught up in anger, what do you think is happening in my body, physiologically? High levels of stress. Now, James Baldwin said about the American black experience, he said that to be a black male, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him because I don't remember the exact quote, but he said, to be a black male is to be in a constant state of suppressed rage, which is highly stressful. So take a condition like high blood pressure, which is more prevalent amongst, again, black American males. Well, it's got to be genetic. No, it isn't. Their biological relatives in Africa don't have high blood pressure. The medical science says, we don't know what causes high blood pressure. So out of 100 people, maybe five who have high blood pressure because of some other condition, kidney disease or some hormonal disorder. But 95 have what we call essential hypertension. Hypertension is the word for high blood pressure. Essential hypertension is, essentially, we don't know what the hell is causing it. That's actually what it means. But slow down for a minute. What if you said the word hypertension slowly? Hypertension. Hyper. Oh, hypertension. Maybe there's too much tension in these people's lives. And that is affecting the autonomic nervous system. And that is making the blood vessels more narrow. And that increases the pressure that the heart has to exert to, to get the blood to flow through those narrowed arteries. And maybe that has to do with economic and social and cultural and racial conditions in this country. And, 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 and the, the, you know, um, the, the reason I, I bring up the example of, of, of minority groups, like in Canada, for example, when you look at addiction, when I worked in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is a highly addicted area, about 30% of the people living there, people injecting and inhaling, ingesting all kinds of drugs down there. And um, it's, it's more dramatic even than the Tenderloin area of San Francisco, if you visit it. And 30% of the people are First Nations, Aboriginal Canadians, who make up 4 or 5% of the Canadian population. Because they're much more likely to be addicted than anybody else. And the reason I bring up these examples is not because there's anything special about these groups particularly, but that culturally and socially they've had certain experiences that has imposed much more stress on them as a group than on the rest of the population as a group. And I don't have to tell you about the history in this country. In my country, the Aboriginal people were 
children were abducted from their families for a hundred years. They were abducted. They, they were forced to go to these schools where they were sexually and physically abused. And now, when they go back to their communities, sexual and physical abuse is endemic in those communities. And so it's therefore is addiction and suicides and mental illness and all this kind of stuff. And the point I'm making with these particular examples is just to show again that human beings are biopsychosocial, spiritual, ecological creatures. And you can't separate the individual Malays from the history, um, from the uh, multi-generational family trajectory, and from the culture as it is today. All this then concentrates in an individual in physiological manifestations like the immune system problems that affect the nervous system that lead to cocaine susceptibility, like the cancer that uh, a stressed and isolated person is less able to mount a defense against, like the mental illnesses that develop originally really as compensations for against stress and trauma. To give you a quick example, depression is supposed to be a genetic disease, really. What does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. I've been treated for depression, probably some of you have. What gets pushed down in depression? Your feelings, your emotions. Why would a person push down their feelings? Because they're too, they're too painful. They're too much to bear. In other words, the pushing down of feelings becomes a coping mechanism in an environment where you're not allowed to feel because your feelings threaten your attachments. So you learn to survive by pushing down your feelings and then 15 years later or 30 years later, you're diagnosed with depression. Now you've got this medical, biological problem, they give you a pill. Now, I'm not here to formulated against pharmacology. I've taken antidepressants. They've helped me. They work sometimes. But they're not the answer. Because the answer is how does that childhood experience manifest in your life today? Oh, well in my case, it manifests by uh, when there's any hint of abandonment, even when there isn't abandonment, but just kind of something similar to it. Because, I mean, here's this woman who I'm relying for social, emotional, and physical contact, doesn't show up at the airport, and all of a sudden my one-year-old infant was abandoned by his mother. Because that memory is carried in my brain. Well, that's how it shows up. Okay. Or, the depression is a result of the fact that, as a kid, uh, given the environment I was in, I really had to learn to push down my feelings because expressing my feelings would have threatened my attachment relationship without which I couldn't have survived. And that asthma is a function of the fact that I grew up in a stressed environment and I don't know how to regulate my own stress. And the society imposes stresses on me if I belong to a certain group. Or the multiple sclerosis is there because I learned, I mean, when you look at autoimmune diseases, 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. Well, then you go back to, okay, because I learned that I had to take care of everybody else and ignore my own needs. So I've taken a lot more stress than I could actually handle. 
That's why I survived in this culture. In other words, if you understand all these historical, cultural, familial stresses imposed certain behaviors on you, a certain self-view, certain patterns of emotional relating, now you can do something about it. Now it's no longer so there's something wrong with me. It's just that this is how I had adapted to what happened to me. And therefore, I have the capacity now, as a conscious human being, to become aware of all this and to transform myself. And that's not easy. It's not so easy to transform yourself because, of course, these adaptations that I talked about were originally related to our very survival as young children, and so we think we have to be that way. We don't know any other way of being, except there's something telling us that this is not right. Something's telling us. And so we want to find out the truth of things. And from that perspective, when things go wrong, it's possible to see them as necessary and as teachers. So there's a teacher that I have who lives in California, and he writes, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They're actually yours. They're specifically yours, designed specifically for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You're not going to go in the right direction unless there's something pricking you in the side telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That is its purpose. And from that point of view, we can look at uh, individual problems like depression or ADHD or multiple sclerosis, anything else, as a problem to get rid of. Or we can look at them as warning signs that we're out of sync with our true nature that we're misaligned somehow with actually who we are. And that's something in us is trying to wake us up. And we can apply that same perspective when we look at society. So maybe there's a wake-up going on right now on the social, economic, and political level so that we can actually ask ourselves, well, what is our true nature? And what kind of social society and culture would we have if we're true to our true nature? which is the same question we have to ask ourselves uh, when it comes to individual problems. And the conclusions are that, yes, there is a human nature, and that human nature was built for love and contact. It was built for, it was built for connection. It was built for mutual protection. It was built for mutual aid. And when we rear people and base a whole society on lines that transgress those needs, we're going to get exactly what we've got today, which is a society which is increasingly conflicted, um, increasingly fractured, increasingly disconnected, and where human pathology uh, is, despite all the advances of medicine, chronic human pathology, 
is on the rise. But Western medicine does not recognize that the pathologies are manifestations of a life, that diseases don't have a life of their own, that diseases express the life of the individual. And if that individual's life is changed, so can the disease in many, many cases. And furthermore, that human beings have an innate healing capacity. There's a healing capacity in all living beings, plant or animal. And along with the wondrous contributions of Western medicine, we could do so much more if we actually respected and evoked and encouraged that healing capacity that's within the individual, which is very much connected to the emergence of, of the true self. Now, for that, you need the truth. That means we, you actually have to look at what's going on. And, and, and there's so much denial in this society. My own profession is a prime example. The average doctor does not hear the information I gave you about asthma. They couldn't explain it, even though the physiology is straightforward. For all the trauma in the society, the average physician does not hear the word trauma in all the years of training. Not that they don't get a lecture, it's not that they don't get a course, they don't even hear the word, except in the physical sense, the physical trauma. Teachers are not taught that the human child's brain is still developing and that the condition for healthy brain development is the presence of nurturing and responsive adults. And that the schools are not knowledge factories there are places where human development needs to be nurtured. That's a very different proposition for an educational system. And the courts don't get it. The courts think they will behave badly. It's a choice they're making. Therefore, they need to be punished for some strange reason. Certain minority groups have to be punished more than the average. Like in my country, 5% of the population is native. 25% of the jail population is native. And of course, when you ask the question, if the science is as straightforward as I believe it to be, and the conclusions are as clear as I believe them to be, why don't we f just embrace it and follow it and do something about it? Well, that's a, the reason for that is obvious, because if, if, this, if everything I've said here happens to be true, which I firmly believe to be true, and if it is, everything, had to be, everything would have to change. How do we teach parents would have to change. How we treat young families would have to change. How we support young parents would have to change. How we pass laws uh, would have to change. How we enforce the laws have to change. How we educate people would have to change. How we run the economy have to change. You'd have to have something different. Well, getting to that something different has to begin with an inquiry. And I hope I've said enough to encourage you to continue on that path of inquiry. Thanks very much.
You may think you're here because somebody in the family's got a problem and you're here to help them. What I'll be telling you throughout the day is that actually each one of us is here for ourselves. There's tremendous healing possible. Does anybody ever really hold? Yes, they can be.